Well, I wanted to uh, just highlight one more detail for next weekend. I think many of you know or will remember that next weekend is the Good Design event here at Chapel Street. Um, we have uh, Rachel Gilson will be presenting in our weekend services. Um, obviously, there's no registration needed for that. But that does mean if you're one who would bounce back and forth between Saturday night and Sunday morning, Next Saturday evening service will not be here at the Mill Creek campus. It's actually gonna be at our Kesslinger campus. So just make a mental note of that. Um, we're looking forward, Rachel will be with us on uh, Sunday morning via simulcast and um, just a really powerful speaker. Got an incredible story and God is using her in so many uh, fantastic ways. So we're excited to have her with us. And then that afternoon will be the, the, the summit. And so if you have not yet registered for that, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, the last I heard, there was just 100-something seats available, so it is getting almost full. Um, and we're excited uh, for this opportunity. We think it's going to generate really important conversations. It's going to challenge our thinking. It's going to equip us as followers of Jesus. And again, along those, those two tracks of Okay, what does scripture teach about gender and sexuality, how we think about this, but then also how do we love our community, our neighbors, our friends who may or may not uh, agree with that, may think very differently than us. Those are both tracks that we want to run on this week, and so we hope uh, that you can be a part of that, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing what God does in, in our midst and through that, through that event. Um, I don't know uh, if any of you are familiar with the show Alone. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law started talking about this like a couple of weeks ago, and I kind of got um, a little hooked on it. I started watching this, I think on like Netflix or one of, one of those places where you watch stuff. And um, if, has anybody seen this show, like familiar with Okay, so I'm not, yeah. So the premise of this show is terrifying. Um, they take 10 or so survivalists, and they'll take them to the upper northern wilderness of Canada, the Labrador sort of area and they will leave them there on their own um, which is probably the reason for the name and they will compete against the elements of the weather and against each other to see who can last the longest out in the wilderness you get to bring 10 items with you each each survivalist gets to select 10, 10 items and i Watching this show is just sort of fascinating to watch what these conditions do to somebody, but I've learned a couple things in the midst. First and foremost, I learned that I would survive somewhere around 30 minutes if this was my case. I'm pretty confident I would be eaten by a grizzly bear like within the first hour of the show. And secondly, it was like funny after the first service, like we, there's people talking about it and we were all debating how long we think, I think some people overestimated but um and then secondly i think that that show validates what we see taught in Gen genesis chapter two that it is not good for man to be alone in fact when you watch the show despite all the enormous challenges that they face as a result of like weather and the elements and uh finding and food and cooking it and everything like frostbite, all this stuff that they have to deal with. 
what seems to take the greatest toll on each of them is the total isolation. Because they're out there, they, they film themselves. There is no camera crew. They get a well-being check once a week. And after a while, for many of them, that's the very thing that breaks them, where they call in and say, come and get me, I want to go home. If you recall last week, Pastor Joe made the point in Genesis chapter 2 that how it provides for us this zoomed-in lens on certain aspects or elements of creation. Most notably, the, the creation of humanity. At this point in our study of Genesis together regarding humanity, we've discovered that God and his creation of us embedded humanity, placed on humanity his image. In fact, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27, when God is speaking human life into creation, he says this, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then last week, as we jumped into Genesis chapter 2, where the text kind of zooms in on these aspects of creation, we see in verse 7, that says, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. Genesis, Yahweh's formation of, of humanity is set apart as unique. Right? There's nothing else in all of creation that is like it. There's nothing else within the context of the garden. You have God, right, who is fully and entirely spirit. God at this point has not taken on flesh in the person of Jesus. He hasn't incarnated himself. We talk about that in, in the Gospels. And then you have the animal world. And the animal world is of its own self. It is just flesh, right? It does not in, contain the spirit. The image of God has not been placed on it. The breath of God has not breathed life into it. And then you have humanity. You have man. And for man, there's nothing else quite like it in the garden. And this is about to become painly, painfully obvious even to him. And so today we're going to pick things up in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever he called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place, and then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to Adam. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. 
This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now what stands out to us there is we hear that text. It, it, we've been in Genesis chapter 1, and, and there's all this rhythm and repetition in that refrain at the culmination of each day of creation and God looks at everything he's created and when he sees it he says it's good it's good at the end of it in day six he said it's very good he looked at all that he'd created so the first time in the text here something is described as not good it's not good that man should be alone and it rings in our ears a bit in fact, this is where I want to start this morning. I want us to understand why is it that God would look at his creation and say, it's not good. It's not good. I, um, I don't know if I would call it quite a tradition, but one of our, our uh, things that we do at Christmas time is oftentimes my mom will buy this big puzzle and she'll just set it out on a, a card table and family that comes around for the week it might be a few minutes you sit down and work on the puzzle it might be some people will be there for like an hour or something just putting together this gigantic puzzle and usually by new year's day or so the whole thing will be completed but it ranges from like adults who are working on this to like my cousin's little kids and inevitably what happens is there's a piece that's missing something that leaves it from being complete our puzzles are more complicated than this puzzle like that one doesn't take us a week to do I don't think I might be um, but you see like there's nothing if you've ever done this like there's nothing more frustrating and like so everybody ends up kind of like taking out the couch cushions and looking underneath every chair and table and that sort of thing finding looking for the piece that is remaining because we've got this box and it's got a picture on it we know what it looks for it to be completed and we can see this and you say there's something missing the design isn't complete you see god's declaration of it's not good for man to be alone is a statement of incompletion again and this and take note of this right? this is prior to genesis chapter three this is prior to the incursion of of sin it isn't the result of some sort of corruption but rather reflects an incompletion that prevents humanity from accomplishing its divine function and purpose and what has that divine function and purpose been in genesis how have we talked about that for life to flourish for it to expand so that more and more of God's created world would experience firsthand the perfect love of the creator. And Adam can't, he can't accomplish this by himself. He can't accomplish this work, this mandate that's been given to him. Humanity does not, and you and I cannot function according to our design in isolation. You were created for relationship. You were created for community, without exception. No matter how uh, introverted we might be or how much we enjoy our alone time, that's all well and good, but the way that we're designed to operate according to our function is in the context of related order. And we see this, right? We see this played out in wisdom literature as well. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this is one of the more famous examples of this. 
But Solomon writes, it says in verse 9 of chapter 4, for two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person keep warm alone? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Like the, the sheer point of him is that you are designed to do life in community. There is strength in numbers. And that remains true for us today. You're not designed to do life alone. And God proceeds then to to make man aware of this need in his life. Back in Genesis 2, what unfolds here, verse 18, he says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So Adam is, is fulfilling his, his dominion mandate that God had given him to rule and to subdue his created order. He's, he's naming all of these animals in Genesis chapter 1, and He's exercising authority over it. That's, that's the connotation of naming in the ancient Near East culture. And when he does so, right, like I picture this, like I picture Adam starting really creatively, like really like hippopotamus and like duck-billed platypus and like all like, like coming up with the cool ones. And then like by the end, like just getting like total utilitarian where he's like, what's it do? It eats ants? It's an anteater, okay? Like, it's a fly. It flies. That's all it is. I don't know biblically if that's how it happened, but that's what it looks like in my mind. But what seems to be the point in Genesis is, is he becomes aware of his uniqueness, but also, I think, his loneliness, right? The design is not yet complete. There is a piece that is missing. And as a result, God now returns to his creative work. Adam's need is recognized and it's acknowledged by God. It's revealed to Adam. And in response, God provides what the text calls a corresponding helper. A corresponding helper. You may have a translation that says a helper suitable for him. Look again at verse 20. The, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animals, but for man no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. In response to Adam's need for a relationship with one like him, and, and catch this, right, because he is in relationship with God. God is there dwelling in the garden with him, but that does not fully satisfy this designed function that God has given humanity. God provides to Adam one who is like him, a woman, a corresponding helper for Adam. In the Hebrew, the term is the Ezra Konegdo. 
And this is one of the challenges when we come into a text such as this because we bring with us like our English connotations and our understanding of what words mean. And for that word helper, sometimes the connotation that you and I have is, is one that is um, like inferior, less capable of, right? So it's like when I was my dad's little helper, right? I would, I would kind of traipse around when he was working on the car or, or fixing something in the house and I would hand him the tools that he needs and like, what do you need? Like a socket? Okay, I'll get the, the ratchet and I'll hand you the tools and you do it. But there was like a clear delineation between the one who had power and know-how and ability and me as his helper. And it's true that at times this text has been taught throughout church history and, and I think at times now that woman by design in creation was made to fulfill a subservient role. But I would suggest to you today that it is completely missing the meaning of the text. In fact, I would say it's a, it's a misuse of it. The word translated as helper in, in Hebrew is the word ezer. It's used over 20 times in the Old Testament. There's two times where it's used in this context of the relationship between a man and a woman. I think there's two or three times where it's used in relationship between nations. So one nation is going into battle and the other nation aligns with it in order to be its helper. And then every other time it's used in the Old Testament, it is used to describe God in relationship to Israel. And most frequently, it's done so with kind of the context of a battle or a, a warrior context. So for example, in Psalm 115.9, it reads here, Israel, trust in the Lord. He, referring to Yahweh, is their help and shield. He's their Ezer. And so on 121, 1 and 2, I lift my eyes up towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? Where's my rescue? My help coming from my help comes from the Lord. The same Hebrew word, the maker of heaven and earth. Tripper Longman in his commentary on Genesis suggests that the word ally might be a more uh, accurate translation of this word. What is abundantly clear when we understand the way scripture uses this word is that there is no hint of inferiority or subservience. In fact, this whole notion of equality in, between men and women is also uh, it's also found in the fact that God forms woman out of the side of the man, that the rib, that word there, the Hebrew word is, is translated side. Some have suggested like the idea here is like God cuts, cuts Adam in half, the, the humanity at that point, and forms from it um, Adam and Eve. See, because if you were to, if you wanted to communicate a sense of hierarchy, you would say that Either if you wanted to communicate superiority, you would say woman was taken from the head of man. She is superior to him. Or if you wanted to con communicate inferiority, you would say woman was taken from the feet of man. But to communicate equality, you would say woman is taken from the side of man. It's a reflection of God's design in this relationship. And then there's the word connecto. Ezra connecto, suitable or um, corresponding to. Unlike 
Ezer, this word is only found this one time in the Old Testament. And it's a compound word. It's the, the word ke and negdo. And what's fascinating about this word is it, it, the, the two compound words put together, one means ke means like or as, and the other means opposite. So in response to this awareness that it's not good that, that man is alone, for man to be alone, God provides him with an ally who is like one opposite to him, a corresponding helper. We can get lost in, in all the details here, and I'm probably like on the threshold of that here. But I don't want us to miss the beauty of what Genesis is portraying to us, of God's provision, his design for humanity, this perfectly corresponding partner. Not identical to, they're different, but not inferior to, but corresponding to. Male and female are created to be different and yet perfectly complementing each other as, as that of equal to each other and equal before their relationship with God, both fully bearing the image of God. And it's in this relationship that they flourish and they begin to fulfill their created purpose. Now Adam wakes up. And he sees what God has done. He sees what God has created. And he, he responds in song. And this is where we discover the creation of marriage. The creation of marriage. Look again at verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the, from the man into a woman and brought her to man. Some have referenced that phrase as the first father giving away the bride. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. When I was a, a middle school student, I used to take the bus. I, I lived, I would like say, a fairly sheltered life, like on the scale of things. I would probably be pushing towards sheltered more so. And I was coming home from school and I got off the bus and, um, and we would walk from the high school to, to home and some like hooligan high school kid, sorry, high school kid, you guys aren't hooligans. This is totally different from you guys. But spray painted the word sex on like in gigantic letters on the front step of the high school and i was like just mortified like i know i'm like i'm not even sure i know what this is but i know i'm not allowed to know what it is and i was like right there in front of me and i wanted to run but i was like frozen in place right and sometimes our approach to thinking about marriage and sex and god's design is this idea that like god's sort of um discovered sex like that he creates everything and then he's like whoa i did not account for this i better put some boundaries in place around this but we miss the point that this is a part of god's design marriage and and the relationship thereof and sex it's it's he has created and it's for our good and before we move on here i want to just i want to take a moment just pastorally just like a heart to heart if we can because all throughout this series, as we've talked about 
design and flourishing. And when we apply that to this discussion around marriage, I know that in a room this size, when I talk about God's design for marriage, for, for some of us, maybe for many of us, this hits on very real points of pain or perhaps isolation or very real places of confusion or doubt or questioning or some mix of all of that. And I want you to hear me say this morning, I get that. In fact, I, 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 I want to keep at the forefront of this conversation, if I can, the design of a loving, good, and purposeful God, but it's the same God who meets us in the midst of our pain and our brokenness. See, these verses in Genesis chapter 2, they provide the very foundation of biblical marriage and the biblical sex ethic. And it's found here in these verses in, in Matthew chapter 9, when, when Jesus is questioned about his sex ethic, and marriage and divorce and all of that, Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is writing about Christian marriage and he, he uses marriage as this reflection, this mirror of Christ's love for the church, he talks about in this language, he's describing the way it images a greater love. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He recites these verses. By the way, I think it's worth noting here that both Paul and Jesus were single. I think sometimes in a, a Christian subculture, marriage is idolized to the point that, that being single sometimes feels like in a context like this, that somehow you are inferior or incomplete. And that's a problem. Right? We were created for relationship, and the result of this created activity in Genesis chapter 2 is a marriage relationship but understand, it is not the only outlet that God creates for us as his children to know and be known. It's not the only context wherein you and I experience relational intimacy. And it's not the only place for love to be expressed and received. In fact, I would contend that sometimes we conflate um, the idea of intimacy with sex. In any view of any amount of knowledge of relations, there's, there's plenty of people who are having sex and who are starving for intimacy. And there's plenty of people who are experiencing deep relational intimacy and yet are not having sex. Simultaneously, then, we also live in a culture where marriage is often depicted as obsolete and restrictive. It's reduced a little more than a piece of paper that, that provides a tax break for us. And again, I would offer the suggestion that both of these uh, represent a misguided understanding of the biblical design for marriage. See, in Genesis chapter 2, marriage is a set-apart relationship. So I want to just offer this definition for our conversation, if I can. Marriage is a divinely created covenantal relationship between a man and a woman wherein they are exclusively united together sexually, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually as one flesh. Let me say that again. Marriage is a divinely created covenantal relationship between a man and a woman wherein they are united together sexually, 
emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually as one flesh. And, and I am fully aware, and I recognize that as I put that up on this screen today, if we were to kind of like, if this were to be presented culturally, right, this is a minority view. I get that, and I understand that. But my objective here in our time together is I don't feel any need to convict culture of this view. I am trying as best I can to articulate God's design to men and to women and to children who have placed their faith in Jesus. And as a result of that faith, are asking what does it look like to live according to the way of Jesus. I feel no need to, to have this bully pulpit where I can tell the world, this is how you ought to live. This is a community that comes together in our, by our own volition, hopefully for most of you, maybe a spouse made you come this morning or a parent or something like that. But most of us are here today and we're asking ourselves the question, okay, what does it look like to follow the way of Jesus? And, and this is what I'm trying to offer us today. See, after... God brings the woman to man. He burst into song in verse 23. In fact, look at this again. He says, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. Adam now recognizes after observing all of creation that there is one like him. Right? One who is different from him, but who, like him, shares the image of God that he can have a corresponding relationship to. And then following Adam's sort of song of praise, this response of joy when, when he meets the woman, you see the narrator now offer a commentary in verse 24. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. And they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. This is why the text says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. It's the establishment of a, a new family. It's the expansion of the flourishing that God has intended in creation and, and designed it for. More people who are experiencing the full uninhibited love of God and and he bonds with his knife it's united with his life established in covenant relationship and just a word real quick on that like the difference we think oftentimes about marriage in terms of of contract and when we talk about contract there is a part that you play and there's a part that I play and if I hold up my end of the bargain and you hold up your end of the bargain then everything goes okay but if you fail on some point or another, then I'm contractually, I'm freed from that. But that's not what marriage is. Marriage is covenant relationship. And covenant says, I don't know what you're going to do. But here's what I'm going to do. I am going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be loving to you. I'm going to be there for you. Covenant says, I am all in and so in a marriage relationship you have two people coming together under covenant who are saying i don't know what you're going to do but i'm going to be all in on this and they become one flesh 
sexual intimacy and covenantal relationship resulting in the opportunity for the creation of new life. And this is the garden vision. And notice in verse 25, the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Capture the beauty of this for a moment if we can. At this point in the story in Genesis, relationally between God and humanity, there was nothing to hide. Between the man and the woman and humanity's relationship to each other, there is no shame to cover. This is God's original design. This is what he created it for. We're about to jump into Genesis chapter 3. And stuff's going to get messed up real quick here. Because most of us, even as we hear this today, our experience of this is, is, feels like a far cry from the garden vision that was presented here. And yet, that's not the end of the story. Sin and, and brokenness and pain, it's, it's going to enter into the narrative here. But, but our God does not leave us there. He does not end this story there. And praise the Lord, we're going to experience that he has a plan to redeem and restore. And it's all been pointing us to Jesus. It's all leading us to what Jesus would accomplish on our behalf. I'll, I'll end with this. Um, and Eric and Allie will come and close us in, in the singing of the Lord's Prayer together. But I recognize again that, that what I have presented here this morning, like, in a room this size, we might be all over the map in our opinions and perspectives. And again, my objective contextually is to talk to the body of Christ regarding the way of Jesus, as I understand it, as I study it. I don't feel a need or feel a responsibility to, to convince the world that they need to hold this view. In fact, my conviction as it relates to that is I want to I live and present to them the person of Jesus. I want to love them well. I want to walk with them. I don't, it's not my job to, to convict them of any sort of views around human sexuality or marriage or the experience of those together, but, but to live and model Jesus to them. And as we come together, and if you've been here for more than five minutes, you're going to know pretty quickly that this is a group of messed up people. And so if that's your experience and your story, you're going to fit in swimmingly here because we are a group of people that are reliant on the grace of God as we continue, as the Holy Spirit continues to produce in us the character of Christ and obedience to him. And so it, wherever you're at in that spectrum, whoever you are, whatever your story is, whatever your experience is, today I want you to know that you are welcome here in this place. I'm glad you're here. If this is not your conviction. I, I'm, if you have questions for me, I'm happy to talk with you that, about that. Um, but again, like, I understand what my job is and what the role of the Holy Spirit is, and, and they're not the same. I'm not him. And, and, and so, welcome. Uh, we're going to get into where things went wrong next week and then what God's going to do about it. So would you pray with me? And we'll close by, uh, by singing the Lord's Prayer together. Father, we do just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that continues to just reveal to us your good design and your intent and your purpose for human flourishing and for life to expand where more and more people would experience the never-ending love of our good God. And that is 100% true of every one of us every single day. 
no matter where we come from or what we bring to the table, your perfect love endures. God, meet us in this place. Continue to shape us into a people walking in the way of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I just want you to know, I, I appreciate you being here this morning. I appreciate that you are a part of this community together as we continue to pursue um, God's created design and order and human flourishing, everything that he experienced. And we're trying as the body of Christ to enact that kingdom vision that Jesus laid out for us. And I'm thankful that you're a part of this community. We can pray with you this morning. That's one of the ways that we practice familial love as the body of Christ together. Um, we have prayer team available uh, for you each and every week. If you came prepared to give today, again, thank you. Your generosity is, it matters and it's making a difference and we are so grateful for you. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ, who took on all of our shame and hiding on the cross and buried it in the tomb and he rose to new life that we can experience in him the grace and forgiveness. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.